When God created the first man, Adam, and placed him in the Garden of Eden to tend it and keep it, Genesis 2.16 says that the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Now it appears that originally man was created with the capacity of living forever in his fleshly body. That if it was not for Adam and Eve sitting, we would live on and on and on. But we all know what happened when Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit. Because as a result, as Paul says, therefore just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and thus dead death spread to all men because all sinned. Not only was sin introduced into the human race, but it quickly polluted all of humanity, so that everyone born into the human race since that time is born with original sin. We are born with an Adamic sinful nature, so that we are sinners by birth, plus sinners by choice. Because as the scripture says, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But not only was sin introduced to the human race, so was death death. Adam died spiritually, that is, he was suddenly separated from the holy God with whom he had enjoyed sweet fellowship. But he would also one day be subject to physical death, the separation of the immaterial part of him from the material part of his fleshly body. As part of the curse on Adam, God said to him that in the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. So Adam is going to die. Adam is going to die. You're going to return to the dust of the ground. Genesis 5 reveals that Adam lived 930 years. 930 years. Now that's a long time, isn't it? 930 years. But then it adds this phrase, and he died. He died. His son, Seth, lived 912 years. His son, or his grandson, Enosh, lived 905 years, and so on. But added to each of these entries in Adam's genealogy are these words, and he died. He died. Death reigns. There's only one exception, and that one exception was Enoch, the seventh from Adam, who lived only 365 years, because Genesis 5.24 states that Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. And so there's no mention of Enoch dying, but rather he was instantaneously taken to heaven by God, and he's sort of like a forerunner of what's going to happen to us at the rapture of the church. Now, before the universal flood, which killed all of humanity except for righteous Noah and his family, the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. After the flood, people did not live as long as they did before. 
It took quite a few generations, and if you look back in the book of Genesis and the different genealogies, before their days were limited to 120 years. But eventually, life expectancy diminished as the gene pool became polluted, and, and the changes in the environment after the flood took its toll upon mankind. David, the great king of Israel, died around the age of 70 and far below the 120-year threshold that God had imposed on mankind. And so death reigns, death reigns. Life expectancy was very, very low. In fact, life expectancy here in the United States has been on the rise uh, in the 1900s, the turn of the, uh, the 20th century. The average American lived only to see 47 years of life. 47 years. 68 years in 1950. By 2019, it's risen to almost 79 years. So we're getting older. But in 2020, it dropped to 77 and just over 76 in 2021. That's because of the COVID uh, pandemic that life expectancy came down. It, de- it depends on what, where, whether you're uh, a white American or an African American, uh, the, their job, their, the uh, life expectancy is different. For a white American, it's 76.4 years, whereas for a black American, it's only 70.8 years. Asian Americans do much better than all of us. Their life expectancy is 83.5 years. Whereas Hispanic Americans can expect to live 77.7 years. I was told by my insurance man that pastors tend to live seven years longer than, than the normal male. And so I guess my life expectancy is a little bit longer. Of course, only God knows the day of my death could be today, you know, it could go. But all of us, I think, are inching closer to the end of our time here on earth. And, um, the, the longest recorded lifespan in modern times was that of Gene Calmet, who lived 122 years and five months. The oldest person living today is 116 years old. Um, Maria Marrera, born on March the 4th, 1897. I have 1997, that would be right. 1897 in California. But one day she too will die. She too will die. You know, scientists and medical researchers have been trying to find ways of prolonging our lives. I read recently that, you know, with the eradication of many of these fatal diseases and the advances in medicine, some are saying that it may be possible for all of us to live to be a hundred or more. In fact, there are quite a few more people reaching that a hundred mark than years ago. Some are seeking ways of cheating death or postponing the inevitable. I've heard of people having their bodies frozen before they die, you know, in hopes that one day when they have the medical cures, they'll be thawed and be able to be cured of whatever they were. I don't know. I don't know if they'll be able to thaw them out, you know, put them in the microwave. What do you do? You know, how do you thaw somebody out? I don't know. But but truth is, then unless the Lord returns for us, all of us will experience physical death. For that is the lot for man. 
So been appointed unto man once to die. We are born, we live, and then we die. But may I say that in the midst of all the recorded deaths in the Old Testament, there runs the hope of a future resurrection. The hope of a future resurrection. The God who created man, breathed into him the breath of life, is able to raise one from the dead, somehow reassemble the body and breathe life into him again. Perhaps the belief in a future resurrection was on the mind of, of, of men from the time of Adam. We do know that when God tested Abraham and told him to take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you that Abraham, it says in the text, he immediately obeyed God, he took his son, went to the place of which the Lord had told him. And when they arrived close to the spot... Abraham told his young servants who had accompanied them, he told them to stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. At this point, though, Abraham did not know the rest of the story. He did not know that God would stop him at the very last minute from sacrificing his son and that he would provide the ram that was caught by his thorns in the thickets as the substitute. But somehow Abraham knew that we're going to go and we are going to come back. The lad and I will go yonder and worship, and we will come back to you again. Somehow, both of us are going to come back. Now, the writer to the Hebrews gives us some insight as to what was going on in Abraham's mind at this time. He writes, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him, in a figurative sense. Even though Abraham had never before seen a resurrection, there had never been somebody raised from the dead to this point. He believed that God, who had given him a promise, God had said it's going to be through Isaac that your seed is going to be, that you're going to be a, a great nation. Isaac at this point was not married. Isaac did not have any kids. And so he knew that somehow, some way, God was going to fulfill that promise. And that if he should follow through and kill his son, that God was able to raise him from the dead. A bodily resurrection would occur. Isaac would live again. Now the patriarch Job, who was a contemporary of Abraham, he suffered greatly. In fact, God allowed Satan to take everything from Job except for his life and his wife. His life and his wife. He lost his family, his possessions, his servants, his health. And his friends proved to be miserable comforters, offering little hope and insight into his suffering. 
In Job chapter 19, he cries out in his pain. He contends that God had stripped me of my glory and taken the crown from my head. He breaks me down on every side and I am gone. My hope he has uprooted like a tree. He has also kindled his wrath against me, and he counts me as one of his enemies. He has removed my brothers from far from me, and my acquaintances are completely estranged from me. My relatives have failed, and my close friends have forgotten me. <laughs> he even complains. He says, my breath is offensive to my wife. I got bad breath, and I am repulsive to the children of my own body. My bones cling to my skin and to my flesh, and I've escaped by the skin of my teeth. Yet in spite of this excruciating suffering that he's experiencing, Job has hope. His hope. What's his hope? His hope is a firm belief in this. He says, for I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another, how my heart yearns within me. His yearning, Job's yearning, is for a future bodily resurrection when his Redeemer will be standing here on the earth, and though this worm is the... I think the Messiah uses the King James Version, though this worm destroys this body, yet in my flesh I shall see God. A future bodily resurrection. David in Psalm 16 expresses his trust in the Lord. He writes, O oh Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance of my cup. You maintain my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance. I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. My heart also instructs me in the night season. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Therefore my heart is glad and my, and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope. He is rejoicing in the Lord and in the great relationship that he has with God and how God has taken care of him. But he says, my, my flesh also rests in hope. Now, why is David's flesh resting in hope? Verse 10. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the paths of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hands are pleasures forevermore. What gave him hope was the fact that the grave is not the end. The grave is not the end. There is life after death. And David was looking forward to the resurrection of his body. God will not allow his soul, leave his soul in the grave, but nor allow his Holy One to see corruption. Now, this refers to David, but on the day of Pentecost, Peter in Acts chapter 2, applies this passage to the bodily resurrection of a future son of David, Jesus Christ. The Holy One, the Messiah. He states in Acts chapter 2, verse 29, Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. 
Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses." So while it is clearly applies to Jesus Christ, this does not negate the fact that David, too, was looking forward to a bodily resurrection. And in fact, as we're going to delve deeper into this millennial kingdom that Jesus Christ is going to establish here on earth, we're going to see that the resurrected David plays a key role, especially in the government of that kingdom. Later, the prophet Isaiah and Hosea both speak of a future resurrection. Isaiah 26, 19 reveals that your dead shall live together with my dead body. They shall arise. Awake and sing, ye who dwell in the dust. For your dew is like the dew of the herb, and the earth shall cast out the dead. Hosea 13, verse 14, states that the Lord will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. O death, I will be your plague. O grave, I will be your destruction. Pity is hidden from my eyes. The Lord is going to raise the dead. He's going to conquer death and the grave. The dead will live again. Now, I wanted us to see the progression of revelation. There's a progression of revelation regarding the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The, you know, the, the Old Testament saints do not have the full revelation like we have today. So they have bits and pieces. And while they believed in a future resurrection, the particulars of when and who were not clearly spelled out until we come to the prophet Daniel. And that's why I have you looking at Daniel chapter 12 this morning. We've looked quite a bit at Daniel's prophecies concerning end time events. Because it was to Daniel that God gave the revelation of the future Gentile world powers uh, and, and the, the, the whole history of the Gentile world. And um, the great Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. And that the last Gentile world power, Rome, or the Western world, would dominate world politics until the end when a fifth kingdom, the kingdom of God, would crush all the others, and be established here on the earth. To Daniel, it was also given the revelation of a 490-year plan that God had to prepare Israel to receive their Messiah and to enter into the kingdom. Plus, to Daniel was given the detailed revelation concerning the rising of the little horn, the Antichrist, the ruler of the Western world, who will make the treaty with Israel at the beginning of the tribulation, break that treaty in the middle, and set up the abomination of desolation in the temple, resulting in persecution, dispersion of the Jews, and then the various battles that are going to make up the campaign of Armageddon. And so Daniel was given quite a bit of information concerning what's going to happen at the end. And so to Daniel was also given the revelation of a future resurrection. And it's found here in Daniel chapter 12, beginning at verse 1. Daniel chapter 12, beginning at verse 1. It says there, at that time, Michael shall stand up the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. 
And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. And at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So there's a future resurrection, and it's clearly going to take place after the great tribulation. Because it's after the time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. And there's going to be two classes of people who are going to be raised. Those who are wise and righteous will be raised to everlasting life. They will enter into the kingdom that the Messiah is going to establish here on earth. And the others who are not wise nor righteous will also be raised to shame and everlasting contempt. They're not going to inherit the kingdom nor to attain everlasting life. Now in John chapter 5, and if you have your Bibles, you can turn over to John chapter 5. Look at another passage of scripture. Here, Jesus picks up on this theme of a general resurrection of the just and the unjust. Notice what he says, beginning at verse 24. He says, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my words and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming, and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself, and has given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Now Jesus here adds additional information that was uh, in regards to the general res resurrection that Daniel saw in Daniel 12. He himself will be the one who will call the dead to life again. Because he is the source of life. As the father has life in himself, he says, so he has granted the son to have life in himself. He is not only the source of life, but he's also the judge of mankind. For it says here that God the Father has given him authority to execute judgment. Now he can fairly judge mankind because he is one of us. Just as he is our high priest today, seated at the right hand of the Father, he can, in, he can sympathize with us because he was made just like us with a human body. So as a judge, he can judge fairly because he's one of us. He became flesh and lived among us. He was made just like us without sin. So as the Son of God, he will call all the dead to rise, but as the Son of Man, he will judge mankind. And when he gives the command, all who are in the graves will come, hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life. Now at first glance, it looks like those who have achieved the resurrection of life do so because of their good deeds or works. 
But as I said last week, and as the scriptures um, uh, bear out, good works or deeds are the fruit which reveal the root. The fruit that reveals the root. Those who are raised to life are those who have hear my words, believe in him who sent me, who has everlasting life, shall not come into judgment, but have passed from death into life. These are the ones who have trusted in Christ for their salvation. They've been born again, the recipients of new life. They have passed from the realm of death to the realm of life. And while physically alive, they possess eternal life, and therefore they're not going to come under condemnation. You know, Jesus would later say to Martha at the graveside of Lazarus, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, he shall live, and whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Those who believe in Jesus, who die physically, will one day be raised to life, and those who live and believe in Jesus will never die spiritually because they have passed from the realm of death to the realm of life. We've been transferred. From the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of our Lord. But those who are judged and condemned are those who have done evil. That is, again, the fruit reveals the root. They have no life in themselves. They've never been born again by the Spirit of God. They have failed to believe and trust in Christ for salvation. And thus they're going to be raised only to be eternally condemned at the great white throne. Judgment. But when... When will this future general resurrection of the just and the unjust take place? Will it take place at the same time? Or does it happen in stages? To answer that question, we need to turn to one more passage of Scripture, Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20, and I'm going to begin reading at verse 4. Revelation chapter 20, and beginning at verse 4 says, And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus, and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their forehead and on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has a part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now this general resurrection that Daniel saw, Jesus spoke about in John chapter 5, the righteous and the unrighteous, clearly is divided into two. There is the first resurrection, and then there is the second resurrection. And between the two, between the first resurrection and the second resurrection, there is a span of 1,000 years. 1,000 years. Six times in Revelation 20, There is a reference to 1,000 years. This is not something which John could have seen visually. It's something that had to be told him. He had to be informed of of it. And the vision had to be interpreted as relating to a period of 1,000 years. 
Now the fact that it's mentioned six times, and it's clearly described as a period of time before which and after which certain events take place, leads to the conclusion that it must be a literal 1,000 years. Those who are part of the first resurrection will live, and they're going to reign with Jesus Christ for 1,000 years in a kingdom. We call it a millennial kingdom because a millennial is 1,000 years. Now, I say this because the majority view that's held by many Christians today is that this is not to be taken literally, but rather figuratively. I've talked in the past about all millennialism. I talked about uh, covenant theology, replacement theology. These are the views, this is the prominent view today. Then they take this as, as being figurative. Jesus Christ, they say, today is reigning in heaven over the kingdom of saints. The church replaces Israel as God's chosen people, and thus it is fulfilling all the covenant promises made to the Jews in a spiritual sense. There is no future literal 1,000-year reign of Jesus Christ here over a literal kingdom in which the covenants made to Israel are going to be fulfilled in a literal way. And the first resurrection mentioned here, they also take as being figurative rather than literal. And so this is from the time of Augustine, who employed the allegorical method in interpreting scripture. The first resurrection is understood to refer to the new spiritual life following conversion or to a believer's life in heaven after death during the current age. It is the spiritual regeneration of the soul of man, not a bodily resurrection from the dead. And they, therefore they hold that that's the first resurrection. It's, it's a spiritual one. Persons become born again. They become regenerated by the Spirit of God. They're given life. The second resurrection mentioned here in verse 5, but the rest of the dead did not live again until the, the thousand years were finished. They contend is to be taken literally as a bodily resurrection of the just and the unjust at the very end of time before God destroys the world. No wonder I don't have a... There we go. I lost my picture here on my little screen. Uh, that God destroys the world. And... Um, so uh, they hold that uh, that that's literal. First one's figuratively, but the second one is literal. There's going to be a literal resurrection right at the end when Jesus Christ returns in their view. He's going to raise everybody. He's going to judge everybody. And then he's going to destroy this world and create something new. And so the second resurrection. But that 1,000 years is so, is so figurative. It doesn't mean anything just means an expanded period of time, however long that might be. Now, um, there's nothing in the text that would indicate that spirit, the spiritual regeneration of the soul, but there's everything in the text to point to the literal resurrection of the body. The Greek word behind the phrase, and they lived, or they came to life again, appears 12 times in the book of Revelation, and it refers to physical life. 
Only one time in Revelation 3 verse 1 does it refer to a believer's spiritual life. And the word resurrection, as in the first resurrection, occurs 42 times in the New Testament, and only once does it refer to something other than a literal bodily resurrection. Clearly, this is the meaning here. The dead are going to come to life again in the bodily resurrection after Christ's second coming. The second resurrection, mentioned in verse 5, occurs 1,000 years after the first. Now those who are part of this first resurrection are blessed by God. For notice verse 6. He says, blessed and holy is he who has a part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. This is the fifth beatitude in the book of Revelation. There's seven of them. This is the fifth. Those who are part of this first resurrection are blessed. They're blessed, first of all, because the second death has no power over them. That is, the second death as defined in verse 14, where it states that death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. And so people that do not know Christ the Savior, one day they're going to experience the second death, which which is going to be separation from God for all eternity. But those of us who are part of the first resurrection, the comforting part of it, is that we are not going to face that. We will never face God's eternal wrath. Because Paul says, for God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5.9 Those who are part of the first resurrection will secondly serve as priests of God and of Christ. We today, according to 1 Peter 2.9, are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We now serve as priests by worshiping God, and we, by leading others to acknowledge of him, and we will serve in that same capacity in Christ's kingdom here on earth. And those who are part of the first resurrection will be blessed by reigning with our Lord Jesus Christ for a thousand years, along with the believers, both Jews and Gentiles, living believers who survived the tribulation. In the future, we're going to look in detail at the kingdom and all that entails. It will be a blessing to be a part of that kingdom. Our future is bright. Yes, there's going to be a time of tribulation, and many times we harp on that and we we zero in on that and all the things that the Antichrist is going to do and all the destruction and judgment that's coming. But my friends, after that, is going to be the kingdom of God here on earth. It's going to be like the utopia that man had longed for and looked forward to. It's going to be a time of blessedness. We'll look into that. Because we're going to be reigning with him side by side. Now let's consider for a few moments who is going to take part in this first resurrection, over which the second death has no power. To understand God's resurrection program, we need to look at one more passage of Scripture uh, in detail, and that's in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 19, Paul plays the what-if game. What if, the, what if there's no bodily resurrection? What if, if that's the case, then Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead? And what if Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead? What difference would it make? 
And he ends with this statement in verse 19. He says, if in, if in this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. That is, if Jesus Christ is dead in the tomb, he's buried, he has not risen from the dead, we don't have any hope. We might as well eat, drink, and be merry. Because tomorrow we're going to die and that's it. Many people believe that's it. But notice Paul's explosion in verse 20. He says, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. And for as an animal die, even so in Christ, all shall be made alive, but each one in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, after those who are Christ at his coming. And so speculation bursts forth into affirmation. Now Christ is risen from the dead, and he has become the firstfruits of the resurrection. Now he's picking up an imagery from Judaism, and, you know, before the Israelites harvested their crops, according to Leviticus 23, verse 10, they would bring a representative sample. It was called the first fruits to the priest as an offering to the Lord. The full harvest could not be harvested, could not be made until those first fruits were offered. And so Christ's own resurrection was the first fruits of the resurrection harvest of the believing dead. In his death and resurrection, Jesus Christ made an offering of himself to the Father on our behalf. But as the first fruits, his resurrection also guarantees ours. Because he was raised, we too will be raised. So the resurrection here that Paul speaks about is a permanent resurrection. There were people that were raised from the dead in the Old Testament as well as in New Testament times. But all of them would eventually die, would eventually die again. But those who are raised in this first resurrection after Jesus Christ leads the way, they will live forever, never to die. But there is an order. There is an order to this first resurrection. Notice what Paul writes in verse 23. He says, but each one in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, after those who are Christ at his second coming. First resurrection is not just one general, one-time event of righteous ones, but it's going to come in stages in a orderly progression. Each of them will be in his own order. And leading the way is Jesus Christ. He was the first fruit, the first to be raised from the dead, the first to be raised to the dead and to receive a glorified body. Joining him, joining him will be you and I. You and I, who know Jesus Christ as our Savior, who may experience the future rapture of the church. Paul, writing to the believers at Thessalonica, seek to comfort them because some of their own had died prior to the return of the Lord, and they were wondering what would happen to them when Jesus comes back. 
He writes, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. And so when Jesus Christ comes, in the first phase of his second coming, the rapture of the church, those who have died trusting in Jesus, they're going to be raised. They're going to be resurrected. We who are alive at that time are going to be caught up to meet the Lord in the air, and we will always be with the Lord. And in that moment of time, each of us, those who have been raised from the dead, and those of us who have been transformed, uh, translated living, we're going to experience a tremendous transformation of our bodies that will enable us to live in eternity. Paul explains in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, Behold, I tell you a mystery, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised incorruptible, we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, this mortal must put on immortality. So when this incorruptible has put on incorruption, this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We all be given a new body. A new body. Similar to Christ's glorified body that he possessed after his resurrection from the dead. A body not subject to death, not to decay, nor to sickness. A body that will live on and on and on throughout eternity. And when Jesus Christ comes back, again, the second phase of his second coming at the end of the tribulation period, to establish his kingdom, we're going to return with him. Because Paul says in Colossians 3, For when Christ, who is our life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. And so by his side, we're going to reign with him in his kingdom. We're going to be part of, this, of the blessed. We are part of the blessed of the first resurrection. We're going to be joined by the two Faithful witnesses who were martyred towards the end of the tribulation period. If you remember their bodies laid in the streets of Jerusalem. They didn't bury them uh, for three and a half days. But Revelation 11.11 reveals that the breath of life from God entered them. And they stood on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud and their enemies saw them. So I believe these two witnesses, as we studied this passage, I believe that these two witnesses were Moses and Elijah because of the, the, um, the miracles that they did and the, 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 the center of focus of these two, Elijah being the greatest of the prophets and Moses being the great lawgiver. I believe that they will 
then be part of that first resurrection and they're going to return with Jesus when he establishes his kingdom here on earth. They're also going to be joined by the tribulation saints, those who are martyred for their faith in Christ. Revelation 20, verse 4 says, And I saw thrones and they sat upon them. Judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. This is the same group that John saw earlier, that great multitude, which no one could number of all nations, tribes, people, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with the white robes, with palm branches in their hands. They are the ones identified as the ones who come out of the great tribulation, wash their robes, make them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in the temple. And He who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger any more nor thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So during the remainder of the tribulation, these martyred saints in an intermediate body are going to be huddled around the throne of God, serving Him. But when Jesus returns to establish His kingdom here on earth, they will be raised to life in a glorified body and will reign with Him for a thousand years. And then some, I mean, go on and on and on. But they're not the last ones. For joining us, the two resurrected witnesses, the martyred tribulation saints, are also going to be the Old Testament saints who also be raised at this time. Some believe that the Old Testament saints were raised when Christ was raised from the dead. However, Daniel chapter 12 verse 2 kind of makes it clear that the resurrection will occur after the tribulation period. It says, many of those who are in sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmaments, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. The Old Testament saints, they were promised to reign in the kingdom. Daniel chapter 7, 27 reveals on the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heavens shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Jesus Christ himself has assured us of the presence of Old Testament saints in his kingdom. When he said that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. And so we're going to be there in the kingdom. We're going to be there in the kingdom. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, Samuel, David, all of those who line the hall of faith recorded in Hebrews chapter 11 and many, many more. They're going to be raised to life, including Daniel who was assured, but you go your way till the end, for you shall rest and will arise to your inheritance at the end of the days. These are the blessed. These are the blessed. 
These are the ones who are going to be raised to life, who are going to be changed and transformed, given new glorified bodies, who will join the living, believing Jews and Gentiles who have survived the tribulation period. And together we will enter into the kingdom that Jesus Christ is going to establish here on earth. The second death is not going to touch us. We will throughout the kingdom age and beyond serve as priests of God and of Christ, worshiping at his feet. And we will rule and reign with Christ for 1,000 years in his literal kingdom here on earth. Our future is bright. Our future is glorious. Something better awaiting for us. Now, if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior this morning, if you're a child of God through faith in Christ, you're an heir of God and a joint heir with Jesus Christ, and you will one day inherit everything Jesus inherits as the first fruit of the first resurrection. You will inherit the kingdom that has been prepared for you from the foundation of the world. One day when Jesus returns in this first phase of his second coming, you and I are going to be either resurrected if we died before, or we're going to be raptured, both gloriously changed and fitted with a new, immortal, incorruptible body. And when Jesus returns in the second phase of his second coming, you and I are going to return with him to be in the kingdom he establishes here on earth. What a blessed time that's going to be. What a blessed time that's going to be to be alive. And we are going to be a part of that. We're going to see that in the coming week. Our future is bright. Oh, to be part of all this through faith in Jesus Christ. So I ask you this morning, close. I trust you know him as Savior. I trust you have heard Christ's words and believed in him who sent him. And that thus today you have the everlasting life. And shall not come into judgment, but have passed. From death to life. If not, if you're not believing, if you're not trusting, put your trust in Him today. Commit your life to Him today. Possess eternal life today. Make your passage from the realm of death to the realm of life today. Be part of those who will be part of that first resurrection.